0: Welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, presented by Easton's new Ultra micro diameter Injection Arrows. Injection utilizes the new deep six standard for more big game penetration than ever before. Learn more about the injection today at www.eastonarchery.com. Now here's your host of Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, Editor Christian Byrne.
1: All right, welcome back to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. We are the voice of bowhunting. And as always, we're glad that you've taken some of your time to be with us today for an absolutely dynamite show. I've got a guest today who is uh, almost certainly uh, one of the most accomplished outdoorsmen I've ever had the privilege of welcoming to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. A man who has been an absolute legend in the whitetail world for. Uh, More than six decades, Uh, a noted deer researcher, one of the world's foremost wildlife photographers, a man with more than 1,800 uh, magazine covers to his credit, and a list of awards that would take all afternoon to mention. Without further ado, I've got... Dr. Leonard Lee Roo III on the phone with us. Dr. Rue has just published his latest whitetail book called Whitetail Savvy. It is uh, absolutely packed, 300 pages of uh, comprehensive information about deer and deer hunting, gleaned from a lifetime of studying these magnificent creatures. Dr. Rue, thank you so much for spending some time with me today.
0: Oh, you're more than welcome, Chris. With a introduction like that, man, I better shine.
1: Well, I know you're on you've got your A game on today because you told me you would and uh i will tell you what, I was looking over this book uh over this past weekend and just some of the Some of the things that you've got about whitetails in there that I would never have known. I mean, like how much blood a whitetail has and what the resting heart rate of a doe is, you know, which, by the way, for those who are wondering, is 37 beats per minute. And the fact that whitetails have hearts that are twice the size of human hearts, which explains why they're so, you know, uh, capable of exerting themselves and they've got such tremendous endurance to elude predators Uh, you've got you've got just unbelievable stuff in this whitetail savvy how long did it take you to put this book together Glenn?
0: a lifetime (laughs) you know i I was fortunate i i was raised on a farm just a few miles from where i live (laughs) in fact i often joke and say i never really got very far in this life because i lived about 20 miles from where i was raised However, just so folks don't think, we, yeah, he is a stick in the mud. I have been on all seven continents. However, I saw my first deer track in 1939. You know, at one time, they claimed that New Jersey had less than 2,000 deer left in the entire state, and they recommended we better get some hides and skulls and stuff to so folks would know what we had in the future, because they were almost wiped out. Now... Then I moved in 1949, I moved up uh, above the water gap, and I, uh, right above Worthington Estate, and Worthington, Charlie Worthington, was a man who brought back the white-tailed deer in this section of New Jersey and Pennsylvania. He was a very wealthy businessman, he had Worthington Pump Company worth millions and millions. And he bought 12,000 acres right below where I was working at a camp. And uh, the herds got so big, he finally released. He just cut the fences down and let the deer go. He was selling them to Pennsylvania and New Jersey for a number of years, selling them a restocking game. Mm. And then he just released them. And I went into to work for a Boy Scout camp. And at the same time, I was working for... Coventry Hunt Club, which was the largest hunt club in the state of New Jersey, we had 6,800 acres under lease. And we figured there, I figured there was roughly 800 deer on that area where a lot of New Jersey didn't have deer yet. So I lived in and among, I hunted them, I photographed them, I ate them. I, it was just an unbelievable bringing up, you know, the, it'd be nothing, nothing to see 60, 70, 80 deer every single day. Mm. So that's where I got so much of my start. I mean, I was working with deer and stuff before that, but, uh, having been over there in Coventry in the heart of the best deer area in, in the whole area, and it's still very, very good. Uh, just let me live with them. And this this is the thing that's so important, is that so many of our biologists are fabulous, but they don't live with the things. They have them in pens and so forth. Whereas I was out in the wild watching them, protecting them, putting out food patches. Uh, I lived right in the midst of deer.
1: Yeah, and well, the other thing is Lenny, is you know lots of us are living in areas where deer are fairly plentiful but not everybody takes as keen of an eye to observing them and not just observing them but recording the observations like you've done and of course you've continued to live with deer your whole life and you've maintained um, you know your own deer herd for photography and research purposes uh, probably for the last Uh, several decades, right? So this is something that's continued right through your lifetime.
0: Yeah, I had uh, my own deer herd for uh, 30 years. I lost them this last fall when Sandy went through and dropped 40-some trees here on my property and just took the fences down and the deer went out. So uh, I'm still seeing, I I got one and a half deer, I got a doe and a fawn here uh if they could have gone out they did not come back in and so forth so I'm still seeing deer every day but the, this whole area has a very very high deer population
1: what uh what was it that uh you know spurred your interest in in studying the deer uh rather than just photo photographing them was it your personal interest as a hunter or an educator or what
0: I'm an impulsive, a compulsive teacher. Uh, you know, all my life, the only thing I've really, really been interested in is wildlife. Uh, my dad was a, an engineer, and I'm the world's worst mechanic. I never wanted to know how anything ran. I don't know why. I just wanted to run when I need it. But uh, I didn't, wasn't interested in cars. I didn't, wasn't interested in sports back when sports comes on the television tonight. night i put the mute on so i don't have to listen to it but the uh, wildlife all my life uh and that started as far back as i have any memories and uh i've constantly like with my own herd i would go out there and i would spend uh five weeks with them every fall all during the rutting season until after the breeding season and uh I would go out with the idea in my mind, what can I learn that's new, what's different, and look and look and look. In fact, (laughs) I used to stay out there, my wife used to even bring me a lunch. She always called it Meals on Heels, and uh, I didn't even have to come in the house. I'd be out there from dawn to dark, and uh, I've constantly, constantly, and I'm still learning stuff, you know. None of us, none of us begin to know all of it. I know a great deal, and I only wish I could remember what I've forgotten. But, uh, yeah, deer have been a passion of mine. And for a long time, it was needed because uh, during the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, uh, it was important to have deer to have meat on the table.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, you talk about this lifetime of learning and i know that you're also a hunter and i know that this whitetail savvy book that you've just published is uh really an update to i know that you've written several different whitetail oriented books over the years but as you said you continue to learn right up to this day and I'm sure you will continue to learn new things about whitetails uh for as long as you can. So, give me a few interesting, you know, observations or conclusions that uh you've got here in this Whitetail Savvy book that maybe we haven't heard before from Dr. Leonard Rue.
0: Well, let me say this. <clears throat> there are a couple of questions about deer that <laughs> I have spent a lifetime watching, observing, thinking about, and I don't know the answer. For example, <laughs> I've watched thousands upon thousands of bucks all over the country do rubs. Now, I was the very first one to write about a licking stick, and I discovered that out in Pennsylvania. And a licking stick is usually a, a little snag or something about, oh, uh, maybe. Uh, two and a half feet high, Mm -hmm. and the top is broken off, and the deer come in and rub it. Now, most people don't even see it because it's so, you know, insignificant when you look at the whole woodland. But the deer would come in, and they would rub that, and they rub it behind the ears because there's more forehead scent glands behind the ear in front of the antlers than there is any place else in the forehead. But the thing that puzzles me is after they rub it all on, then they lick it off. Why? Another thing. Everybody's used to seeing a, a deer urinate on his hocks, mm-hmm. the tarsal gland. And for years I said that was the most important gland of all. And after they urinate on their hocks, and they lick it off. Why? So help me God, I don't know. So, uh, yeah, I'm... Still, still trying to put all the pieces together, and uh, not doing that with everything.
1: That's great, and uh, and and you're you're um you're not afraid to touch on some maybe a little bit more controversial things in this book as well. Like you have a whole chapter on emotions in deer and i read that and i found that pretty interesting. What's your what's your take on that and you know how does that kind of jive with you know your you know interest in deer as a hunter and do you get some pushback from people when you try to talk about uh, deer being emotional and uh, do people get upset about that sort of thing or do you find that they're pretty accepting of it?
0: No, i think most people and only because the biologist is called anthropomorphic. In other words, you should not assume that wildlife has the same type of reactions that human beings have. And I say, why not? Because, you know, when they get to figuring it all out, we have ninety some per, 99% of the exact same genes and so forth that the bonobos and chimpanzees have, Okay. We're not that far from animals. Now, why can an animal express an emotion? Uh, Anybody that has got a dog knows that when he comes in the house, the dog's tail is wagging like mad. The, The dog is happy to see him. Now, I use the word happy. Can you use the word happy? Why can't biologists use the word happy? The dog is happy. He's wagging his tail like mad. You got a cat. He comes up and he purrs and he rubs against your leg. He's depositing scent from his jig glands. He's marking you as part of his personal territory, okay? Now, same way, I watch a doe. I got pictures of little fawns. The doe was laying down there, and they're both busy-looking mom's head. And it's, so help me God, she looks like she's smiling, okay? Mm-hmm. Don't tell me there's not affection there. I've seen I had a little fawn got tangled in a thorn bush, broke his legs. I had to uh, dispatch him. And uh, for two days, the doe stood on the outside. Came back to that bush every day and spent the whole day outside that bush. And it was the third day before they finally broke off and went away. I saw it with the elephants over in Africa. A young elephant died. Two big cow elephants spent three days. They would put their tusks under the little guy, try to get him to stand up. He's dead. But they wouldn't acknowledge that. They wanted them to come with the rest of the herd. Now, when I see these kind of things, and, you know, we talk about thinking. Well, there's some of us are not as smart as some of the rest of us. There are some deer that are just dumb as everything. And other ones, through knowledge, through experience, became practically brain wizards, Okay. For example, Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine a couple of years ago ran a pictures the fell took with a trail camera. There was one huge buck that was seen on this farm out in Iowa, but every hunting season he disappeared. Well, then there was an old root cellar out in the middle of this huge cornfield, and they saw tracks going to the root cellar, so they put up a trail camera. And every morning before it got light, during the breeding season, that buck would come back, go down underground into a root cellar, and spend the day. Mm. Then at night, he would come back out. Now, nobody ever would think of hunting for a deer in the middle of a flattened cornfield now without, without any cover whatsoever, and they would never believe that <laughs> he would go down under the ground, into a confined spot but the deer knew were safe
1: absolutely so yeah i i know that's of a, okay. i know of a similar situation on a property where i hunted a number of years ago and there was an old sort of ramshackle barn on the property that was no longer being used and there were several uh deer, including a couple good bucks that were doing kind of the same thing. They were going inside this old barn during the day and spending the day in there. (laughs) And then they would come out at night. So that, that brings up, you know, kind of another part of the discussion that you have in your book. You've got a section in there about instinct versus intelligence. Talk a little bit about that and how, you know, maybe all deer are pre-programmed with, you know, certain instincts, but how some deer will go beyond that, you know, like that buck that you gave an example and actually, you know, learn and adapt, you know, based on their, their experiences, you know, and how they process information.
0: Okay. Let me say this, Chris, is that first of all, the deer that we have today are the finest specimens we have ever had or they wouldn't be here. Okay. for example, I have often said that the opossum is just about the dumbest animal that I know. You have to say he's doing something right
1: because there's a lot of
0: we as (laughs) (laughs) well, they've been here for over 65 million years. Long before there were anything such as apes, human beings, and so forth, these guys were stumbling around out there with the dinosaurs. Now, it's still here, so (laughs) they're doing something right. That's instinct, okay? Now, I can't hardly believe that a possum actually does much in the way of thinking. But instinct, we all have it, or you wouldn't be here. For example, you, take a, you throw something to somebody and their hands come up to catch it. You take, push anything near your, your face and, and your eyes close, your eyes blink. You've got to protect the eyes. And the, the whole body is just filled with all those instinctive things that we do not have to think about because if we had to think about them, we, our ancestors would have been killed. You have to have things that you do before you realize what it is. For example, a lot of times I've watched deer and something suddenly will startle them. They don't stand there and say, hey, what was that? They run and then stop out there someplace where they're farther away and look back to see, well, what was it? Mm -hmm. And it may have been a simple thing like a branch coming off a tree. But the instinct is to get out of there, put distance between you and what could be possibly danger, and that's instinctive. Now, like talking about those uh, that buck and the, you're talking about the deer, I uh, also know of a, a couple of deer that would go into a, an old abandoned barn. I had forgotten about that, but yes, I, I have witnessed that also. And uh, it was another buck down in Texas. They couldn't ever get a, a handle on them until they found out that during the daytime, he went down crawled into a culvert under a major highway and had all these trucks rumble over the top of him all day long. But he only came out at night and it wasn't until they had traps that they could actually find that that's what the sucker did. Now that that's beyond instinct. That's thinking. Okay. When I sit out here and I watch the the birds come into my feeder and the squirrels come into the feeder. Now, it's a squirrel proof feeder. And only three squirrels in the 20 some years I've had the feeder up have ever figured out how to beat the treadle. But when they do that, that is thinking. Whenever an animal is capable of doing something that is not instinctive, it had to be done by thought. When I was a kid, when I was a young man, that's been a long time ago. When I was a young man, I did a tremendous amount of fox trapping. When the fox was the smartest animal we had here. Now the coyote is here and he's smarter. But anyway, uh, it was just amazing. I ran into foxes that you could never trap. I used to put traps upside down because they would dig them up and flip the traps over, my regular ones. And then I would bury the trap the same way, but put it upside down. So when he tripped it, spun it over, I was hoping I'd catch him. There were some that I just had to quit. If I had a high school degree, those suckers were professors. Okay. Because there was no way that you could ever catch him. So, and, uh, that, that's, intelligence. When you are a creature is capable of coming up with a situation to which it has never been exposed and is able to beat it, that's intelligence. So what,
1: uh, in your, you know, many decades of observing whitetails, do you have any sense of, you know, what percentage of the deer population is a truly you know, high-intelligence deer versus, you know, just your average run-of-the-mill deer versus your kind of dumb-as-rocks deer?
0: Okay, all you have to do, Chris, is figure out what's the age of the deer. Now, here in Jersey, for years, almost 86% of our deer were shot when they were a year and a half old. And that goes back to the point where long before there was any of these antler regulations and so forth, and that's being much more readily accepted today because the deer are not needed for food as much as they were 40, 50 years ago. Today, I, I mean almost all the hunters eat their food, but you realize how many food banks we have that for many hunters today, hunting is a sport, not a necessity. And it used to be a necessity, okay? Mm -hmm. So I would say any deer that is four years old, five and a half years old, six, those are the most intelligent because if they hadn't been intelligent, they would not have lived that long. And most people don't realize. People often say to me, well, what's the average life expectancy of a deer, life expectancy of a deer is roughly 12 years old. Why? Because in that length of time, their teeth wear out and they can no longer masticate the food enough to support life. Now, that being said, the oldest deer that I have records of was shot down, the two of them came out of Alabama and they were 23 years old and that with tagged deer living in the wild, I've had deer in captivity that lived to be nineteen, but they were eating uh commercial feed. Wow, but the deer that in Alabama they were wild deer living under wild search situations, and they know the exact time because they had ear tags that were dated
1: now how do you think person so, how do you think personality plays into that too because that's something that we've been writing about quite a bit in recent years. And, um, you know, I know one of the guys that I have uh, as my one of my field editors, a guy by the name of Bill Winky and, and you're probably uh, somewhat familiar with Bill. You know, he talks about how every deer has a unique personality and that could kind of tie in with the whole idea of uh, intelligence versus instinct. But obviously, uh, you know, absent any uh, mortality from predators or automobiles or hunting you know a deer might be able to live 12 years or so but seems like some of these deer their personality is such that they like to move around a lot more during the day than maybe another deer does or they are a little more predictable in their movement patterns to visit certain areas and so a deer like that may be more apt to get killed by a hunter than you know another deer uh, and so it's, it's maybe a matter of personality as well. Is that something that you subscribe to in terms of... Uh, oh,
0: yes. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, when you, t- you talk about the behavior of deer, and that's what whitetail savvy is, it's all the behavior of deer that I have observed over 70-some years. And uh, they, there are just as many personality traits among deer as there is among people. Now, the average group of people, if you go down to a mall, I would say that 90-some percent of the people will do exactly what the other person is doing. But 10% don't. And that's the same thing with deer. You you, you put it well. The, uh, there are some that are, are running around in the daytime and have a chance to be killed and there are some bucks that I know never move until under the cover of darkness. So I say, no matter what it is, uh, each animal will do what all the rest of them do, 90% of the time, perhaps, and I'm just using that as a round figure, but every one of those animals has an individual personality. And one other thing that I often say, whenever you read about the food habits of deer, and biologists go to great lengths to to stack up, and and I'm not knocking the biologists. I'm just saying that this is what they do, is that they will write down that the deer, this is your preferred food, this is this, this is that, and they, they talk about it because that's the ones that they're studying. And I always say, whenever you hear of a food study of any bird or any animal, they are eating what is available in that particular time, at that particular place, and that's because it's available. Mm-hmm. Okay? It may not be what they prefer. But if, if you don't have any of that, you will see they have a second choice. And if everybody said, oh, well, that's your preferred food. No, it may not be. It may be that the preferred food is long since gone.
1: Yes, yeah, just like around I'm, here, just like i tell, tell my wife and kids, you know sometimes your kids don't want to eat what's prepared, right, and I always tell my wife, well, when they get hungry enough, they'll eat that
0: that's right <laughs> <laughs> that's right the reason they can be picky is that they have choice, and they push your choice off on you uh for example. I, <laughs> One of my favorite meals is when I have a uh, stormy day is to have a can of tomato soup and uh, a toasted cheese sandwich, uh, which I put into the soup, break it up. <laughs> and that's to me is fabulous. Okay. Well, that's not what the average person eats, but it, it's my preference. Uh-huh. And we're fortunate enough to be able to indulge our preferences. Wildlife does not. Uh, we have almost no wildflowers in my area, because they've all been eaten by deer. And the thing that I would like to point out, they, we keep talking about how deer are eating a lot of the farm crops. They're eating the crops because they can't get browse. Why? Because it's been eaten off. They are primarily a browsing animal. They would prefer to eat twigs off, tender, tender twigs off brush, trees that are starting to, to come up and saplings and so forth over any of your farm food, but they can't get the brush because in most areas we have too much deer, and especially if they're in Pennsylvania, they have found that so much of the forest is not regenerating itself because the deer have wiped it out.
1: So you, and that, you really believe that if you gave... A uh, deer a choice between some twigs and a pile of soybeans that it would choose the the twigs.
0: That's right. That's what I'm saying.
1: Now, now, now you... I don't want
0: I don't want you to go cut the twigs and have them eat them after they dried. But if he had the choice about eating the the browse off shrubs off brush, that he would take that over farm crops.
1: Now, you've done some pretty interesting research on deer feeding behavior over the years, including literally counting how many acorns a deer will eat (laughs) in a day or how many twigs they'll browse in a day. Uh, Can you give me a little bit of your factoids on what you came up with in those encounters?
0: Okay, we we know that of all the foods
1: that a wild deer has
0: access to. His favorite would be white oak acorns. Why? Because acorns of any kind are a favorite food. They're very high in carbohydrates. They build fat faster than any of the other foods that a deer can eat. And the deer instinctively know they have to have body weight in order to survive the coming winter because they do not know the severity of the winter, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, the reason I like the white acorns over the red ones is that there's less tannic acid. The uh, chestnut oak is the largest acorn we have, and it's the last one that the deer will eat because it's more bitter with tannic acid. So, yes, they, uh, they would prefer to eat the white oak acorns. It's very nutritious. Now, when... With my deer that I had when I had the herds, I always fed a mixture of uh, commercial cow feed, 16%, because deer do best on a 16% diet of protein. You get the greatest body growth. You get the greatest antler growth. And so that was always of prime importance. But I also put corn for them, now in the summer months they didn't need much corn. They ate the protein. Mm-hmm. But the minute it began to get cold, the last of November, they would switch. Well, before that, they would switch over and eat more of the corn because it has more carbohydrates than the commercial feed did. Mm-hmm. Then I found out about the first week in December, their food limits would cut down at least. 40% or 50% of what they had been eating all summer. Why? Because under natural conditions, most of the food in the forest are gone at that time in its nature's way of putting the deer on idle, putting their motor on idle. They move less after the hunting season, they move less, conserve energy and the, uh, entire diet is cut down. You can offer them all the food they have, all the food you could possibly eat, and they will still cut their diet down because they're built with that saving grace into their system.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. We, uh, we ran a piece about that not too long ago, and just talking about the fact that, like you said, no matter how much food you make available to a whitetail in the wintertime, it's going to lose weight throughout the winter no matter what because that's just the way their metabolism is designed
0: that's right and it stays off uh december january last of february first part of march they pick up but if you were to look at the deer's embryos you would find out that for the first three months there's very little growth in a deer's fetus so but after that time they jump why because Usually by 1st of March, uh, all your spring runs are open. You've got new vegetation coming on. And it's more important for the doe's body to have the food during the winter months. But after March, it takes over that the fawns get the bulk of the nourishment. Because if you have a deer under starvation, they won't have any fawns.
1: Mm-hmm, the,
0: that's right. The forms die and are aborted.
1: Now, just out of curiosity, what did you find when you were doing your counts and things like that? How many acorns does a deer eat in a day?
0: Well, I don't have the figures off the top of my head, but it takes six acorns to make one ounce uh, of On the average acorn, six of them. Okay. And uh, when you figure out that an average deer is eating eight pounds of vegetation per hundred pounds of body weight, so you got a 150-pound deer and he's eating roughly 12 pounds. Now, the deer instinctively are smarter than we are because they eat a varied diet. You could offer a deer... Two or three different kinds of food, and he would eat two or three kinds of food. He may have a preference. Well,
1: I I just did the, I just did the math, and like you said, I know that they're not going to eat only acorns for a whole day. But if it, if if it was six acorns to the ounce, and they had to eat twelve pounds of food in a day, then that would have equaled eleven hundred and fifty-two acorns if I did my math right. That's a lot of ac- right? That's a lot of acorns in a day.
0: Yes, but like I said, they won't eat just acorns, so you have to subtract a couple hundred of those, okay? Right. Because they also want to get uh, roughage, more roughage than they get from the acorns. But those those are the kind of things that have always fascinated me, and uh, it's things that most people never go into, but I want to have some idea of... uh, just what the areas could produce. I uh, use Pennsylvania's figures of uh, how many acorns you would get to an acre, and then multiply that out by what the deer were consuming and how many acres it would take, or how many deer could survive on an acre for a length of time. Because that to me is fascinating. That to me, now the book. White tail savvy is not about hunting, but any hunter who knows what the deer does and why they do it is going to be a better hunter and have better chance of success. You know, in early fall, the acorns start to drop, usually around the middle of September. So any bow hunter that has a good stand of white oak should be in those trees with stand somewhere because that's going to be the favorite food mm-hmm. yeah let's and let's, it's knowing what's favorite why and how and when let, and where
1: let's talk a little bit about the hunting application of all this stuff uh lenny you you've seen a lot of changes in the hunting world in your lifetime and uh i'm wondering as you look back at, at your lifetime as a bow hunter um, how has our increased knowledge of whitetails changed the way that we hunt and what are some of the very latest insights that you've gained into deer that are continuing to cause you to evolve as a hunter
0: Well, let me say this. As 87, I don't hunt anymore. I haven't now in a number of years. And I had to give up bow hunting early because I had a tremendous amount of arthritis and could not draw the bow. And uh, let me say this. I have never shot a huge buck because, like I said, for 21 years, I worked for Coventry Hunt Club, and the idea I, I was doing a lot of patrolling. I had to do the patrolling. I checked the, the, the hunters and so forth. I was a deputy game warden for the state of New Jersey. And at that time, my goal was to shoot the first buck that was legal so I could get back to do my work. So I did not have the time to, to spend that the average hunter does because I was out there hunting the hunters. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, let me say this again. Because of the fact that the economy, even though it's down right now, is better than it was during the Depression years or thereafter, the meat is not as needed as it was. It wasn't as, it's not as dependent upon as it was then. And that has allowed this idea of antler restrictions. Because actually, a deer does not reach maturity until he's four and a half years old. Up until four and a half year, his body has more demand on what food intake, food is ingested, than does the antlers. After the body needs have been sacrificed, then if the deer has ample food, he can grow antlers. The bigger the deer, the, the, the older the deer, the more food can go into antlers, which is why if you check your record books, your Boone and Crockett record books, you will find that many, many, many states are now having many more records going into the record books than they did previously because the hunters are allowing the deer to become old enough, to become big enough to be actual fabulous trophies. Mm -hmm. You know, so... uh, so many things are changing. Like I said, uh, most of the hunters are still hunting because they utilize the meat themselves. But if you check all these food banks that are so very common and, and fabulous, in my opinion, uh, we're hunters, particularly here in New Jersey. My God, we can we can hunt every day for about three months. You can take a, a deer a day, right? you know, it's possible to take about a hundred deer here in New Jersey in one year. Nobody does. I have friends who've taken 11 or 12, but, uh, so many of the hunters today do not utilize the meat or have more than they need and put it in the food bank so that, uh, people who need food can can utilize it. Mm -hmm. I think it's a fabulous idea.
1: What, uh, Right now, we're obviously just uh, here in mid-December. Uh, Christmas is just around the corner, and and uh, you know, in a lot of states, uh, the late seasons are going to be opening if they're not open already, and probably continuing, uh, you know, right through January. What uh, what insights do you have into the whitetail world that uh, particularly for this late? Uh, or for this winter period what would be your top advice and recommendations that you would give to bow hunters who are still looking to fill a tag during the late season
0: okay there's a number of things you have to realize that the rutting season of the white-tailed deer usually starts around october 15th it goes up until about december 15th And you can judge that by looking at the deer's neck. I realize hunters don't have a chance to check the necks like I always did when I was doing photography. However, you will find that starting around the 15th, because of the testosterone in their body, they are just like so many of these sportsmen that are are on these uh, drugs. They bulk up. And, of course, this is one of the reasons why they have to rub their antlers so frequently. I can remember as a kid, we had a neighbor, Roy Erie, and we stood in a little patch one day of Aspen and there were 11 rubs on these little saplings. Oh man. He said, this is the place to hunt. This is the place to hunt. He said, there's 11 bucks here (laughs) Because because at that time there was no, almost no information the average person had because there were no deer. Now, when your sportsmen get these injections, they have to do a lot of exercise in order to maximize the result of the medications that they're taking, the steroids. Mm -hmm. The same thing happens with a buck. Now, they start to do rubbing. The first rubs are usually first week in September because they're taking the velvet off. But that's only the first time they rub. From there on, they're not only rubbing to as an exercise or putting their scent all over the area, but it's required of their body to do a lot of that rubbing to maximize size. Now, that's you know, testosterone stays high all through the uh, pre breeding season, October 15th till about December 15th. In Pennsylvania, because you're right on the same parallel as I am, the peak of your rutting season is going to be November 17th. And let me put a a word of caution in here. There is so much written today by very well-known writers about the phase of the moon. Forget it. The biologists have found, and anybody else can find That is all done by photoperiodism. How many hours of daylight do you have in a 24-hour period? That is what governs the changing of the seasons, the birds migrating north, the birds migrating south, the animals getting ready for rutting season, the the woodchuck going into his burrows. It's all done by the amount of daylight that you have in a 24-hour period. So the peak of December, of peak of your breeding season for the state of Pennsylvania is going to be roughly November 17th. Now, like we said, they're individuals. Usually, the earliest any of my does bred was November 9th, and I had a doe that you could count on being bred around November 9th. It's usually, the neck starts to go down roughly about uh, oh, December 15th. The antlers start to come off a week or two later, uh, and the bigger the buck, the sooner he'll shed his antlers because his testosterone has been taken down far more than the smaller bucks. Okay, He's been more sexually active. And while we're talking about being sexually active, you, they, they, most people believe that the biggest bucks breed all of the does. They are only capable of breeding about six does per year because they ordinarily team up with the doe about 24 hours, 48 hours before she comes into estrus. He stays with her during the 28 hours that she's in estrus. They breed on the average of once every four hours, and you can set your watch by it. You count it, and I've had, so I've sat there throughout the long daylight's and periods and counted them, and I knew exactly when they were going to start to breed again. And it's the female it instigates the breeding because she's geared to that, and then he stays with her for another day. In order to make sure that another buck doesn't mount her and mix his sperm in with the, ma- the major bucks, and all those want to breed to the biggest bucks because instinctively they know that's proof in advertising. They, if they have good antlers, that means they've had good food. It means they have good genes, mm. and that's it's more important. The only thing, the most important thing for all creatures on the face of the earth. It's a propagation of the species, okay? So this is why people will be attracted to one person and not to another because instinctively they think that that gene will be one of the best for them. Oh, it's fascinating.
1: So now the rutting season is pretty well wound down. Yes. And and so how do we we find these deer now to, to hunt them?
0: Okay. With the weather being as cold as it's been, it was down to nine here the other morning, the deer are going to be spending more time on the south side of any of the hills. And over there in Pennsylvania, you've got plenty of the hills, okay? There will be no point for them to go the other side because the difference in temperature will be maybe 10, 15 degrees. Mm. And every degree that they can be warmer will allow them to uh, survive a little bit better. So they're going to be over there on, I would watch for clumps, feeding areas, bedding areas that are on south sides of the slope because that's where they're going to be. Now, as we have already discussed, they're not going to be coming out to feed as readily because they, their system is already shut down. They started to shut down the first part of December. So the thing of it is, you're going to have to do more bedding areas than you would feeding areas is more important to them.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and right now with the snow covering the ground, and I think that, you know, it's been pretty cold across the whole country here so far early this, <laughs> this winter. Actually, technically, I don't think winter even starts until the 21st. So it's not even winter yet, but I think a lot of the country... or a lot of the North America's deer habitat is already snow covered. And of course that, that makes access to the ground a lot more difficult for these deer and they've got to expend more energy to get at foods that are, you know, if they want to go out into cut grain fields and things like that, well, it's a lot harder for them to access those foods if there's crusty snow on the ground.
0: That's right. That's right. And, uh, they can move fairly well until the snow gets over 18 inches, and then it, it, it they have to bound, and that's just too doggone uh, de- de- demol- demolishing of their energy. So it would be... Uh, the bedding areas are going to be more important at this time than they would any other. Mm-hmm. And You know, here in... New Jersey, our deer do not go into yards, Uh, they do in Pennsylvania, they do from up in New York and up in Maine and so forth, particularly Maine, Uh, they go to areas which are genetically in their system to go to these areas, they are taught by the others, but they are taught to be go to these areas where you have a lot of protection. Now, in this area, that's where I'm looking. I can look right out the window, and there's huge areas of uh, red cedar. That's it's almost impossible for a wind to blow in those red cedar swales. Uh, the deer love them. They get in there. There's some sunshine comes down. They find a little clearing, and the cedars hold up about 70%, 80% of the fallen snow so you have a bare ground underneath. And this is another thing. Deer, being southern animals, have not yet learned to use snow to their advantage. And what I mean by that is that and I've spent a lot of time up north. Up there your caribou, your moose lay down in fresh snow so it envelops a body and acts as insulation. Deer don't Every deer you see before he lays down usually paws the ground, unless it's bare already. But if there's snow, he'll paw a hole in the snow and lay in the hole. But the snow doesn't envelop him. Now, it does protect him from the wind if the snow is deep, and he gets down into less than 18 inches. He's completely out of most of the wind. And so that's warm for him. But uh, they do not utilize snow as the northern animals do Mm. well Well, it's just uh
1: i i I tell you lenny it uh we could probably talk for a week about whitetails and i wouldn't have scratched the surface of everything that (laughs) you you know about these animals and uh that's why you managed to pack uh, like i say about 300 and some pages here into whitetail savvy and uh uh, I'm looking forward to getting through this whole book because I learned something just about every page or two here, and I thought I knew a fair amount about whitetails. Tell tell me a little bit about uh, where people can get uh, their hands on whitetail savvy, and I think you've got an offer to get some autographed copies as well.
0: That's right. Uh, if they can get well on, on our website, Roo wildlife, Roo, Rue, wildlife, Rue, R-U-E, Rue Wildlife Photos, one word, and that'll bring up our website. And uh, the book is described in there. And every book that goes out of here is personally autographed. Uh, And if you want it to be personalized further with somebody's name, I'm more than happy to do that. If you want to give it as a gift, perhaps, or if you want it for yourself, I'll put your name in it and the personal autograph. And uh, Rue Wildlife Photos. Or you can call uh, 908-362-8202, and my wife will pick up the phone and answer. Uh, I usually don't because I don't hear it as well as she does. Or 138 Millbrook Road, Hardwick, New Jersey, 07825. You can send a letter. You send a check. PayPal, there are all types of ways of doing it. But Rue Wildlife Photos is the way most people get in touch with this
1: gotcha well lenny it's great to see that you're still uh continuing your quest for wildlife knowledge uh at the the young age of eighty seven I believe so hopefully yeah, you got, 87. you got another ten or fifteen good years left in you uh you've been living right and uh all those years of fresh air and exercise in the outdoors are serving you well so uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today and uh if you want to pick up a copy of whitetail savvy it's a it's a beautiful hardcover book i think your price on that is uh, 29.95 lenny and uh you can that's visit, right you can visit rue wildlife com. and uh, just want to thank you for your time today like i said i wish we had more time but uh you know, just no way we can get through all this in an hour, but uh, well, it sure was a pleasure talking to you. And uh, I just appreciate all that you've done for, for us as hunters through your work uh, in, you know, highlighting the beauty, the majesty of the white-tailed deer, all those great photographs that you've, you've uh, entertained us with in the magazines over the years, you've inspired us. And uh, the information that you've made available to us has really been a blessing. And I, I wish you all the very best for a Merry Christmas, a very Happy New Year. Honey.
0: All right. Thank you kindly. And the same to you. God be with you.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for
0: listening to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, presented by Easton's new ultra micro diameter injection arrows. For more information, pick up a copy of Peterson's Bowhunting Magazine on newsstands now.